Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a, a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They then said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to, the, to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what, what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, John. You may be seated. It's me again. We continue in our study of Genesis. Allow me to pray for us before we look at Genesis 11 together this morning. Father, our minds, our words, our ears are all imperfect as our kids pointed out to us today in our kids' sermon. And I just pray, God, that you would once again by the power of your spirit, by the will of the Father, by the work of Jesus Christ. Allow us to understand and hear your word, to know your gospel, and know the way of salvation that you have laid before humankind. I pray that all this and more would come from this passage. Guide me in my words. Help me not to be a hindrance. Help me to be clear. Help us to learn, know you, and love you more. We love you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, the Tower of Babel, we're here. Uh, we're finishing up uh, Genesis 1 through 11. It's kind of considered prehistory. We move next into Abraham. Um, what's happening here is this is an explanation as to, although there's only one family left on the earth after the flood, why are there so many tribes and nations and languages and types of people? And so if everyone descended from Noah, why are we different? And so here we have the story of the Tower of Babel as an explanation. Uh, connecting it to us today, uh, what we're going to see in this passage is that humanity has a desire. Uh, they have a desire to uh, create this center uh, where humanity can be unified together, uh, where they, by their own power, can know where one another are, who one another are. And through this, this effort, it actually causes deeper division, further separation. And so as we connect this idea to us today, listen, this desire for humans to create a focal point of unity is still alive and well. <laughs> it's still around. We know it. We see it. Um, and the, the reality is this from Scripture. The solution is actually more apparent uh, than we think. And so let's take a look 
at this story. We're going to take this in uh, sections. First, we're going to look at the setting. So what's happening at the time that this tower begins construction? So to catch us up, humanity has been expanding. So the, the humanity from Adam and Eve, humanity expanded. The line of Cain became uh, unreasonably evil. God wiped them out to preserve humanity. Noah and his family began to do the same thing, to spread and subdue the earth. And as they're moving out, they come to a new place, verses 1 and 2. Now, the whole earth had one language, the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So once again, humanity expanding, multiplying. This is their purpose. Remember the covenant that God made with Noah? This is the purpose he reiterated. It's the same purpose from the garden. It's now the purpose for Noah's family. And so they're doing really what they were designed to do. However, however, once again, who is it for? They're expanding their own kingdom. Look at the next section. The idea comes up, the idea of the tower. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Why are they expanding? And what name are they expanding? In their own name, in their own kingdom. They're building something for themselves. Just a few things to point out. This phraseology, let us make bricks. Let us build ourselves a city. Let us make a name for ourselves. These words should sound familiar. When God is creating, that's how he talks. Let us make humankind. Let us make man in our image. And so they're using the same creative type of words as God used to create. But what are they trying to create? A name for themselves is what it says. Let us make a name for ourselves. So they want what is humankind's desire. Once again, this center for humankind, a beacon of human greatness. And so they want this place from which the kingdom of man can thrive and survive on earth. And so they're making this city, this tower, in a kind of self-made security, self-made praise. And look at what gives them the idea, technology. We don't think of bricks and mortar as technology, but for these people, that's what this is. It's an advancement. They, they've come up with the idea to, to cook bricks and make it. And so they say, well, let's use this power that we have, this technology that we have to make our name great. One author this week in my study said that Babel, later Babylon, is the quintessential worldly city where man tries to exalt himself to the position of a god. That's what this is about. This is the same old story. There's no new idea under the sun. We talked about it during our confession of sin today. What, remember the original sin. What was the, the motivation behind it? Yes, the fruit looked delicious. Yes, Satan had spoken to them and, and lied to them. But what is the motivation? They saw the fruit and saw that they could be like God. That's the motivation. This here again is the motivation. That sin is echoing through the ages and is showing up in this story of the Tower of Babel. That idea echoes even today. That idea thrives in the hearts of humans. Humanity still seeks to be its own God. And it's actually pretty blatant about it. I mentioned this at Easter this last year. Um, I've not read the whole book in case you think I might be smart. But um, 
a book by a gentleman named Yuval Noah Harari. He's a very popular uh, uh, evolutionist in our uh, times. Wrote a book um, called Homo Deus, homo meaning human, Deus meaning God. And literally his theory is that through technology, through technology, humans will eventually be able to solve all of its problems. We will become our own gods is the theory. Humanity, what do we want to do? We want to solve our own problems without God. We want to determine what is right and wrong without God. We want to unify ourselves around godless ideas, godless achievements. And Christian, as we mentioned today, every sin that we commit, this is not just about them and us, every sin we commit is a human act, a will, a human act, a act of human will to be our own gods. That's what this is. And so, yes, this is modern secular thought, humans as gods. This is also ancient secular thought. That's what's happening here. And so in ancient times and in modern times, mankind looks at its own abilities, looks at its own potential, and we are fooled. We're fooled. We think that we don't need a God. And we can actually see this in the evaluation that God gives of the city and the tower. Look at verses five and six. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. They all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Let's talk about two different things here. One, the Lord coming down to see the city. He's not surprised by it. It's the same kind of language from Adam and Eve walking with God in the garden. Remember, sin had separated humanity from God. And so God is not permanently present with humanity until Pentecost. That's how long God was separate from humankind. And, and Calvin in his commentary says that this language by Moses is actually used for man's sake, not God's. Meaning, we may think that God's not watching. We may think that God doesn't know, but God comes down to see what he already knows about. God comes down and he is waiting patiently for his moment of interruption. Going back to our Christmas sermon. But I also want us to notice, do you see the potential that God sees in his own creation? You see how God views humanity. God is not anti-human. God's not anti-human. And in fact, who would know better than God who created man in his own image, the actual potential of humankind? God knows the potential of humanity. We have great potential. The, the achievements of humankind, no matter who is doing them, they inevitably bring God glory. They bring God fame. Why? Because where is creativity but from God? Where is intelligence but from God? Where is wisdom but from God? Art reflects God's creativity, science, God's order. Everything about us, in some way, the good things reflect who God is. God himself has given us great potential. Think about this. Their technology is making them think we should build a city and a tower. I read an article today about flying cars. That's where we're at. It's the potential of humankind. However, however, when that potential is disconnected from God, it becomes completely useless. It's useless. It's futile. 
A theologian, K.A. Matthews, says this, human cooperation, when it's fueled by autonomy and directed towards self-interest, is shown by this, this story to be shallow, impotent hubris. Our own potential fools us. And so then we have the event, the famous part of the event, verses 7 through 9. Let me read that to you one more time. And so God said, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed from, uh, them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Notice with me the contrast between the strenuous labor of humankind to build this city, to cook the bricks, to put the mortar in. It's hard work and the ease with which God puts it to a stop. You see the contrast there. Think about how much sweat equity, how much brain power was poured into this project to unify humanity. And God, by a word, changes the languages of everyone. In a moment, I, I think it's okay to, to look at the impressive creativity of humanity. I'm certain that whatever they were building was a sight to behold. There are things that humans have built. We call them the seven wonders of the world. But also look at the incredible creativity of God creating all the different languages that there are. And so this moment where God confuses humanity and separates them through tribes and languages, this is the state of the world as we know it today. We've never known anything else. Tribes, cultures, languages, all of which have changed over time. But there's also the same thing. There's still this tension. Imagine the tension just after languages change. Your friend Harry now says things in a different language. The, 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 the desire, there's nobody named Harry in the story. I just made that up in case you're wondering. Um, where's Harry? I don't see Harry. Um, listen, imagine the tension of I wish I could understand him. I wish we could connect again. This tension is still around today. There is a tension for humanity to unite. There's a desire to gather together and revel in our own greatness. The world feels it. The scripture describes it. We all want unity. We want unity. We want connection. Think about all the human ideas that are aimed at reconnecting humans from the telegraph all the way to the internet. What is the point? To connect humanity. We desire to organize ourselves into connected groups. Not sure why this uh, illustration came to mind, but even businesses uh, see this, secular businesses see this and, and try to capitalize on it. Starbucks, before the pandemic, they had spearheaded this, this business model called the third space. I think their business model now is longest drive-through ever. I, but I think Christian chicken or Chick-fil-A, whatever you call it, is uh, giving them a run for their money. Um, What's a third space? You have home, you have work, and where's that other place that you belong? Starbucks wanted to be that and capitalize that and profit on that. The language of, of connection, the language of unity, the language of love, it's infused in everything in our culture. And I would say that that topic of love is no, no more present in our 
culture than in the topic of love. Even the arguments about love. How could you tell me who to love? It's a connection that I have a right to. As if human to human connections designed by humans are the ultimate bond. Listen, the bottom line is this. We can learn this from the Tower of Babel. We can learn this from the scriptures as a whole. That human, that human connection, human unity is never going to truly be unified, done by human hands. These ideas that we hear day to day, the Tower of Babel in its moment seemed like a great idea. Wow, one place for humans to set their sight and be unified over one place. But unity for unity's sake will never succeed. It can be very deceiving. Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, which is a wonderful short book about Christian community, and it's actually a critique of worldly community as well. He says this, human love makes itself an end in itself. It creates itself an end, an idol which it worships, to which it must subject everything. That's human connectivity, human love. And so humanity making connection together by its own ability will never, ever, ever reach the heights of heaven that we think it will, just like the Tower of Babel. Now, that's fair, you might be thinking, but didn't Jesus talk a lot about unity and love and connection? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Let's talk about that. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, the kind of unity, the kind of connection that Jesus is concerned with is not connection for connection's sake. It's, it's connection and love that's derived from God. His love isn't just for the sake of what a nice relationship. His love is for his own sake, for Christ's sake. Listen to a couple passages of scripture. We did 1 John, uh, I think two Advents ago. That book is really about Christian unity. Listen to what, what the Apostle John has to say about love and unity. Beloved, let us love one another. Sounds very unifying. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved and sent his son to be the payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What is the purpose? What is the origin of connection and unity? The love of God for us in Jesus Christ. Unity, human unity only happens when God unifies us back to himself. And in our union with God through Jesus Christ, are we unified with other people for eternity? Human unity happens through God. Listen to one of the, the um, quintessential passages about unity in the Bible, Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. If you're wondering where the Bible speaks against racism, here it is. Remember that you at the time, so Paul writing to Gentiles, were separated from Christ. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Where is true unity? Where is true connection? Where is real peace? Where is reconciliation? Where is unifying love? 
only in Jesus Christ. Only in it. So we're not unified as humans by our tolerance for one another. We're not unified by our love that we can muster up for one another. There's only one place where humans truly can be unified and connected, and it's in the loving forgiveness of Jesus. That's it. That's the only place. And so, folks, the unity, the connectedness, the, the, the love recommended by, proposed by the world with no recognition of God or his son, all of it is hollow and empty and pointless. Boy, that sounds bleak, but it's true. It's true. Human love, human person-to-person unity around a center, around a human idea, around a tower, whatever it is, it's not really a pinnacle. It's not really a great achievement. It's not the best we can experience. Real unity, real connection, real love is God's love for us. Romans 5, but God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see the only undoing of the separation that happened at the Tower of Babel is the blood of Jesus Christ? That's the undoing of that that event. Nothing else can undo that separation except Jesus. Now, I'm not trying to tell you how to feel. That's not what I'm trying to do this morning. But listen, this truth can't be disappointing. It can't be. There's too much beauty and truth in it. So listen, let's, let's follow it through. If true unity only comes through the love of God, if, 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 if true unity is only accessible through the love of Christ for sinners... That means that there is an opportunity right now for everyone to experience this kind of love and unity right now. Right now. It's called the church. It's called the church. The church is far from perfect. Let's just get that right off the bat. The church is far from perfect. It's full of people, myself included, who only partially understand God's love, and we live that way. We live with partial understanding of who God is and what he's done for us. But what do we have? At the core of it all, we have this spirit-empowered unity that spans cultural differences. We have this unity that, that allows us to be messed up because we are. We have a unity that's not dependent upon wishy-washy affinities. What do we have in common? It doesn't matter. We're forgiven by Jesus Christ. And so the church is a place where unity is founded on forgiveness extended to us by Christ. And in fact, it's the only organization in the world where these relationships will last through eternity. So for those of you here this morning or listening at another time, whatever, if you are If you don't consider yourself part of the church or or a non-Christian, whatever the label is you put on it, listen, I want to talk to you about this specific expression of God's church called Grace Presbyterian. We label ourselves as broken sinners. That's how we talk about ourselves. We are sinners, and we believe that we have been shown the truth of our offense against God by the Bible. It's not something we've arrived at ourselves. We believe that God and his wisdom and his love has showed us that we are sinners. 
But not just that, we're not just moping around. Well, that stinks. Listen, God's also shared with us, told us what he's done about it. He's done something about it. God paid that debt that we owe him himself. And what we're saying this morning, what we're pleading with you this morning, or whenever you're listening to this, is we're inviting you in to come and join that family. We're a family. We're unified through the fact that we know we're sinners and we know what God has done and we believe in that thing. And we're saying, join us in that. Join us. Live a life as close to true unity as you can experience on this planet. Christians, this has a message for us too. This sounds really pompous. The church is God's gift to humanity. You understand what I mean by that, okay? Well, look at us. I wear a cardigan. Um, it's really hot in here, by the way. The cardigan was a mistake. Um, I don't mean that in a pompous way. What I mean is God told us about our separation from him and one another. God told us what caused that. He now has told us what puts that back together. And then he allows this group to, to take place on this planet where it can be incubated, where unity takes place. And so th- there's a couple things here. One, if we truly are that gift, we ought to be asking people in. Asking people in. There's no other political idea or place or thing that brings people together truly we have what we 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 have the knowledge we have the know-how we have the truth of where true unity comes from and so if we care about this world we should be telling them about jesus that's the first thing and second thing The church in our lives as individuals, it's essential. It's essential. And I'm not talking about shoulds. Well, you better come to church or God's not going to love you. Sorry, that's the voice. I always go to that voice. I'm sorry. Um, I'm talking about a privilege. It's a privilege to be at church. I'm not talking about the building or with the music. I'm talking about with each other. These relationships are God's sweet gift to each of us. To be here with our brothers and sisters in the grace. No one here deserves to be here. Do we see that? And yet we're here nonetheless and we sing the songs and we hear the word and we pray the prayers and we eat the supper. Why? Because Jesus Christ. Period. It's not always perfect, but fellowship with God's people is sweet. It's sweet not because it's always happy or joyful. Not because people always treat you well but it's sweet because it's founded on the unshifting ground of Christ's gracious forgiveness of our sins. And so this morning as we approach the table of the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is many things, but this morning we're going to emphasize the fact that it is a celebration, it's a rehearsal really, for the unity of, that we have with one another in Christ in eternity. In eternity. If you want proof that Jesus is undoing the division that happened at the Tower of Babel, allow me to present this piece of evidence from Revelation 7. Listen to these words. Again, the Apostle John 
a view of eternity, says this, after this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What do they have in common? Jesus. What do we have in common? Jesus. And so to celebrate, to participate in Jesus' reunifying work, we come as saved sinners united in Christ and eat of the Lord's Supper. Who should celebrate that unity? Only those who confess that they are sinners, that profess that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved from that sin. Those who have been baptized, made that public profession, you are called to come in unity with one another, not because of your affinities, not because of your culture or your tribe or your background, because of anything but the saving love and work of Jesus Christ. That's it. And so this morning, if you don't believe in that, if you reject that you need a savior, you don't need a God in your life, as we've just talked about with these folks from Babel or the folks from the Garden of Eden. If you don't need that, if you feel like you can self-govern well enough, it doesn't make sense to come eat. This is a meal of unity under the banner of Christ. And so if that is where you're at, the Bible even takes it a step further and says, do not come as a warning. And so we communicate that this morning as well. Let's take a moment Let's quietly pray to ourselves. Let's put ourselves in that place where we are excited, ready, joyful to celebrate our unity and eternity together by the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. And I'll gather us together with a prayer of blessing in just a few moments. Father, someday sacraments won't be necessary. Someday we won't need a physical representation of your spiritual presence because we will be physically present with you for eternity. But until then, until eternity comes, we need you. We come in need. As we wait for the time where there will be no grief, no sorrow, no sin, no death, no separation, no tears, no sickness, no fear, no anxiety. We come to the table for the nourishment of our souls and the comfort of our hearts. And we come together as the family of God, as brothers and sisters, saved by grace. And so I pray this morning that you would bless this bread and this cup as such, nourishment for our souls. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, amen.